The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Gospel according to John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, was, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. Say that with me. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's just a super simple statement there. Jesus said to her, woman. Okay, that's not. I know that sounds kind of harsh, right? Like woman. Woman. But this is a term of respect and endearment uh, in the original language. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. By the way, if you get nothing else from today's message, that is just good advice. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Say that, now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Parenthetical, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So back in the day, you would serve the good wine first, and then after people had kind of lost their sense of taste, you would, you would, you would dilute the wine uh, with water progressively so that by the time, you know, you get to the end, you just, you, you don't even know what you're drinking anymore. <laughs> Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We are always thankful, God. We give you Praise today. God, we open up your word, the Holy Scriptures, like Tony said, not just, uh, not just any book, certainly not just a collection of fictional stories, but your holy and divine word that's living and powerful, that's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, you can awake the sleepiest soul right now. God, you can touch the hardest heart. God, you can cause the most spiritually blind person to see through the power of your word. God, you can unburden the most burdened soul in this place. And we pray, Father, please, that you would do this and so much more. God, you have seen this moment from before time was ever even made. And so, God, may nothing hold you back or hinder you from doing all that you desire to do right here and right now, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So when you're driving, you know, when you're driving, because you always obey the laws when you drive, when you're driving and you see afar off uh, uh, an octagonal sign that's red with, you know, white border on it. Before you can see the words, you, it's a sign, right? It signifies something. You're supposed to do what? 
Okay, I follow some of you after church, you know, and I'll tell you right now, some of you like have translated stop into a slow roll or a Hollywood stop, you know, you, you, uh, you're not really getting the point because the word does say stop. But even if you didn't see the word, you know, the sign is signifying something. Uh, maybe you're driving in a place you've never driven before. And so um, the, the road and the area is really unfamiliar to you. Well, you see that sign and it signifies that you know, you're supposed to respond in a certain way. You're coming up to an intersection. This is what a sign does. A sign is a revelation. A sign is an indication. Uh, remember with me that John, when he wrote this gospel account, it's unique uh, with respect to all other gospel accounts because John's account is not synoptic. It's, a, it's not a synopsis of the life of Christ like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. John uh, in a completely different way, arranges his gospel account around eight signs that Jesus worked or Jesus performed. I really don't, you know, like the word perform because it carries so much connotation with it today. But eight signs that Jesus did or worked that signified that he was more than just another guy, more than just a good teacher, more than just a good, good example to follow, but that he was the son of God. Things that he did... Um, that only God could do. And then there were eight sayings that Jesus said that only God could say. No one else could say what Jesus said when he said things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. Um, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Things only God could say. Well, John arranged his gospel account around these signs and sayings so that we would understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And that in understanding that we would believe and have life in his name. This is the very first sign that Jesus works. And it's the first sign in this gospel account. It also happens to be the first uh, recorded sign chronologically. So if you look chronologically at the life of Christ, the very first miraculous, wonderful, supernatural thing that he ever did was this particular sign right here. And the purpose of it, you see in verse 11, is uh, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and check this out, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this sign, which I do think oftentimes is just one of those signs that's ignored, you know, it's kind of passed over. Uh, sometimes we don't think a lot of this sign because, yeah, you know what, it's just one material turning into uh, another material. I mean, it's not like a blind man uh, was enabled to see. Uh, it's not as, you know, it's not as amazing as a lame man being able to walk. It's not as sensational as a woman who is possessed with seven demons, is exercised of those demons and made whole. Um, or, you know, there's kind of just this ascending ladder of, um, this ascending ladder of significance that we place on miracles that Jesus did based on how amazing we think that they are. I think if you look at John's gospel account, probably outside of the resurrection of Christ, most people would say, man, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that really was the most significant, sensational sign that Jesus ever did. Um, and I would, 
I would just encourage you to put pause on that for a minute because this sign is pretty sensational in and of itself. I mean, it's extraordinary. When you unpack the turning of the water to wine, you really see how sensational this sign was. In fact, this is what we're gonna talk about today. Through the turning of water to wine, Jesus was revealed as creator. He was revealed as initiating a new covenant. And he is also revealed as the true source of all blessings and joy. Do you know that that's who he is today? Do you know that he is the true source of all blessings and joy? All of this is packed into this amazing first sign that Jesus did. And you know, it, it all comes to pass because there was a problem. The problem actually became an opportunity. And I want to encourage you to just consider that. Oftentimes, you know, we've, the framework that we see our problems through is just obstacle and difficulty, but when we put Jesus into the equation, the problem does become an opportunity. Well, there, there was a, a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus and his family were invited. Uh, and Jesus, you know, because his disciples were hanging with him, Jesus invited his disciples as well. Um, this would have been a, a wedding ceremony very different than anything you've ever experienced before. You know, for us, uh, we get a letter or an email or a text uh, that's an invitation, and, and we show up, there's a 30-minute service, there's a reception afterwards, and it's pretty much over. Uh, very different in ancient Judaism. In ancient Judaism, on the, the day that the bride and the groom would be married, the bridegroom would have come as a surprise into the village or into the town. You see, that marriage had been arranged years past when the two were just little children, so maybe eight, nine 10 years old, mom and dads would have gotten together. Uh, there would have been a matchmaker. Some of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof and you're singing the song right now. There would have been a matchmaker and an arrangement was created. There was a document that was signed. And then, you know, the process of time would come to pass and the father of the bridegroom would say, hey, now is the time for you to go get your bride. The bride would have been waiting with anticipation. She would have had... Uh, her maids of honor, as it were, with her. And he would have rolled through the town uh, with his dudes, and he would have picked up his gal, and they would have walked to a big assembly hall where they would celebrate this, this marriage ceremony. And there was, a, there was a, a formal celebration. You know, a rabbi would have pronounced his blessing. They would have been bound together in holy matrimony. The whole town most likely would have emptied out into this big celebration hall where they would have partied for up to seven days. They, I mean, it's a long celebration, right? There's your wedding reception. I don't know. Uh, I do know how much weddings cost today. Back then, celebrating for seven days would have been pretty expensive. But they're celebrating for seven days. One of the biggest pieces of the celebration was the wine because in, in Jewish culture, wine always symbolized joy. Um, so as they were gathered together, there was always plenty of wine. Well, there was a problem here in this situation because they ran out of wine. Uh, we're not sure if the master of the ceremony failed to get enough wine or if the bridegroom's dad failed to get enough wine, but there was this big problem because it would have killed the vibe of joy. So, 
So let me just say to you today that our problems become an opportunity. Our problems can become an opportunity. The problems you have, the challenges you have, the difficulties you have, the anxieties you're carrying, the burdens that you're loaded down with. The, I'm not just talking about the absence of wine in your life, but the absence maybe of money, the struggles in your relationships, the battles that you're dealing with in the workplace, all of these obstacles or problems become opportunities for divine revelation if you're willing to place them in the hands of God. That's, that's what they can become. That's what they can become. And you know, Mary knew this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew this. They, they ran out of wine. She's obviously a, a friend of the family, and so she does what she should do. She came to Jesus, and she's like, they have no wine. They have no wine. And he looks at her, and he's like, woman, woman, mother, respectfully, my hour has not yet come. You know, this is not the purpose that I've come for. He was not giving her a hard no. He was just acknowledging that, uh, that though this wasn't the reason he came, it still did fit within the scope of his messianic mission. Because what he did in answering this request was he gave a self-disclosure. Right, hey, this is, my hour's not yet come. This is before, you know, the plan really was to initiate the messianic movement. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm able to take this problem that you have and turn it into an opportunity for self-disclosure. I'm able to turn it into an opportunity for personal revelation. I'm able to take this situation that from every human perspective just looks miserable and impossible and, you know, this amazing celebration that's been so great is going to end on a really bad note. Well, I can step into this and turn it around so that people can see, specifically my disciples, they can see who I am. And every problem that you have, every issue that you're dealing with, if you will follow the same steps that Mary took and placed the issue in the hands of Jesus, your problem, your obstacle, your difficulty will turn into an opportunity for divine revelation. That in it, that in it, that in it, if you're willing, right, if you're willing, because you know how some of us are, instead of giving it over to the Lord, we hang on to it ourselves we spend all of our effort, our time, our toil trying to fix the problem. And you know, we may put a Band-Aid on it. It may be fixed for a moment. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes when you are the one toiling to fix your problem, you just make it, you just, oh, there's a lot of experience right there, <laughs> especially right in this section. You just, you just make it worse. How much better is it for us to place it in his hands? and to trust him with it. Uh, I, I look at scripture, and I would just suggest to you today that that really is the testimony of the Bible. You know, you see issues like infertility placed in the hands of God, it turns into a promised child. You see inconvenience and personal calling turning into the rescue of Nineveh. You see a big giant that no one's able to overcome turned into the revelation of Israel's greatest king. Snake bites into healings, prisons into salvation. This is what we sing. You turn graves into gardens, bones into armies, seas into highways, right? Seas into highways. And then we wrap that song up with you're the only one who can, right? You're the only one who can. This is what he can do in your life if you take it, if you're willing to take the problem and the adversity and place it into his hands. Don't 
underestimate what Jesus can do in your storm. Don't underestimate it. And don't underestimate the purpose that he has in it. Well, this problem became an opportunity as the Lord was willing to help this family out. And so he gives instructions, right? I mean, this is the, the statement that Mary makes to whatever he tells you to do. And so he instructs the servants to uh, take the six stone water jars. They were used for the rites of purification. We'll explain that in just a minute. And he says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And then as they did that, very simple instructions here. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting how little detail there is. Because if you're a servant, I mean, it's really hard to see how anything good can come from just filling these six water pots with water. He says, fill them with water, and now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. I just want to say, if I'm the servant, I'm like, really? Like, why are you, I'm going to, I am going to fill this water pot with water. I'm going to draw water out, and I'm going to take water to the master of the feast. He's going to slap me. That's what's going to happen, because he's not looking for water. He's looking for wine. I mean, this is just going to be one massive disappointment. But what happens in this situation is Jesus is revealed as the creator. Because unbeknownst to the servants and unbeknownst to everybody else at the party, there's something happening with the water. There's something happening in those stone jars. He is deconstructing water as a molecule. You guys know how it goes. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. He deconstructs it and then he adds, because you guys know this too, that wine is not just hydrogen and oxygen. It also has carbon in it and it also has nitrogen in it. And there are other elements in wine as well. So what he does is he deconstructs a water molecule and then he out of nothing creates carbon and he out of nothing creates nitrogen and then he reassembles these molecules together and totally bypasses the process of how wine is made. Because you know, wine takes time to make. You got a vineyard, you're planting the vineyard, you're tending the vineyard over the course of time as you've watered and weeded and cared for, the grapes have grown, you've gone through the process of harvesting the grapes, putting them in the vat, crushing the grapes, gathering the wine, allowing some time for fermentation, and then you serve it. And this is what he does, he bypasses all of it. He bypasses all of it, because by the way, he can do more in a day than you can do in a lifetime, right? He can do more. He can do more in a day than you can do in a lifetime. He didn't need the process. He didn't need the normal process. In those six stone jars, there are six nuclear reactions happening, all contained by the word of the Lord. All created out of nothing. The Latin word ex nihilo means that he, God, is able to create out of nothing. Only God can do this. We go back to the book of Genesis, and the Bible says that that God created the, the heavens and the earth, and, and that word means out of nothing. And then, and then he took the raw materials he created, right? He created the raw materials, and then he shaped them over the course of six days. This is what he's able to do simply by speaking a word. Over summer, I installed a smart home in our house. It's just a Google smart home, right? So, so lights are connected to it, and... 
and our speaker system's connected to it. So, so I can say, I'll be walking through the house, and I'll say, hey, Google, turn, turn, on, turn on family room, and the lights will go on. It's really cool. Or if I want to worship, and I got a worship song on my mind, I'll say, hey, Google, play Graves to Gardens, you know, on family room, and it'll come on. And I'm like, this is, this is pretty cool, you know? Like you just, you just speak the word and it happens. And hey, that might be cool with a smart home. How much cooler is it to create something out of nothing, right? The power of the word of Jesus Christ. He is the one who flung the universe into existence simply by speaking the word. This is a picture of a, a recent picture from the brand new telescope that's hanging out 100 million miles, I think, from Earth, uh, the Webb Telescope. This is the Tarantula Nebula. And so, I mean, amazing picture, right? This is what he is able to do. The same one that turned the water to wine is the one who spoke that right there into existence. The nebula, all of the, yeah, it's just good. You know, nebula is just a bunch of uh, cosmic material that over the course of time with gravity is compressed uh, and ultimately creates stars. It's a star manufacturing plant that he's made. And then behind the nebula, you see tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of other stars. I'm just saying to you today, he spoke that into existence it, it, it exists because he said the word. The water was turned to wine because he said the word. He bypassed the normal process. And if he can do all of that, if he can do all of that, he can handle the issue in your life that you have today. He can handle the issue. You're like, yeah, but pastor, I'm like 10 bucks short. He can handle it, all right? He can handle it. Pastor, I've been looking for a job for a long time. You know what? He can handle it and he's faithful, He's faithful. I love what Alexander Pope said about this water to wine. He's an ancient commentator. He's like, that means really old. He's dead. So like, that's really old. He said, the conscious water saw its master and blushed. I, I, I like that, right? The conscious water like saw its master and blushed. In other words, the water knew who it was in the presence of. And, and I just want to say, do you know who you're in the presence of? I mean, not just when we gather together, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are permanently in his presence, which is why Peter was able to say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, because he cares for you. Hey, take... I'm just simply saying today, take the burden that you have and cast it, roll it over, place it on him. Number one, because he's able. Because he's able, he can handle it. Number two, because he cares. He cares for you. You're like, man, I've been burdened and I've been sad and I've been discouraged and I've been depressed. Well, guess what? He has walked with you all along the way. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is not disconnected from your emotional condition and state. When you're burdened, he's burdened. And you know what he does? As the intercessor, he brings your need to the Father on behalf of you. Jesus is the only place worthy of unloading your anxieties. Jesus is the only place worthy of, un of unloading your anxieties because he is the one who can do something about it. The second thing today that we see, as I mentioned, is that he is revealed, interestingly enough, he is revealed as the one establishing a new covenant. Sometimes this point um, is, is missed 
Um, but it's not an accident that he takes these six stone jars that were used in a Jewish ritual for purification. It's not an accident that he does this because, you know, there's, there's symbolism in it. And I think his disciples got it. So back in the day, if you were at this wedding ceremony, you know, you would have meals and various courses of meals. But before and between each of the courses, you would have gone through this process of washing your hands very carefully. Because you would have believed back in the day, it was falsely taught, that what comes from the outside can defile a person on the inside. And so if there was, you know, some defiled piece of skin from, from a Gentile believer or for a leper, from a leper that got on your pita and you're about to dip it into your hummus and, and, and you, you do that, it's been connected maybe to your hand or maybe it's been connected to the plate and you eat it, well, ceremonially, now you're defiled. And so they would have gone through a very meticulous uh, ritual of washing their hands and then washing their cups and washing their plates because they didn't want to be defiled. Like this really did express the ritualism of Judaism at the time. And so what does he do? He takes these stone jars that represent the ritualism of Judaism and it's in that place that he works this supernatural transformational miracle. He takes what was common and turns it into something beautiful, and he does it within the context of a wedding ceremony. Now, the rabbis taught that wedding ceremonies symbolize God's relationship with Israel. And so in the context of this wedding ceremony, you have this transformation, you have this picture, you have this symbol of the law being fulfilled and the grace of God coming to people through faith through the ritualism that they would have engaged in consistently in washing their hands, he takes what was common, that common practice, and as an act of grace, he transforms that common water into wine. And not only that, but he does it at the end of the wedding ceremony, symbolizing how in the end times, the last days, the new covenant would come. A commentator said this about this point. He said, John included this sign to underscore the historical transition from the recurring ceremonial requirements of the old covenant to the grace of God through faith in Christ in the new covenant. And not only that, but he does it on the third day. John's very particular about noting that point that it happened on the third day because the third day is significant throughout scripture. It was on the third day that Abraham saw the place that God had provided in Genesis 22 as he bound Isaac. It was on the third day that God met his people on Mount Sinai and gave to them the law. According to Hosea chapter 6, it was on the third day that God revives or revived his fallen people. It was on the third day, according to Jonah chapter 2, that Jonah's life was brought up out of the pit and he was rescued from the belly of the great fish. And then obviously we know it was on the third day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And I think in John's mind, you're like, I have no idea what I'm clapping for. But he said resurrection, and resurrection is good. 
And I think in John's mind, he's making that connection. He's making that connection because the water turning to wine is symbolically speaking of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. We're just stone jars. We're just common and ordinary like water. But when we put our trust and faith in him, we receive the grace of God and he takes our ordinariness and he turns it into something spectacular. He takes our sorrow and he turns it into joy. He takes our mourning and he turns it into dancing. And so all of that, I believe, is symbolized in this sign. And the final thing today is this. He is revealed as the creator of joy. He is revealed as the creator of joy. He is revealed as the source of all blessing. I know this may sound like maybe ridiculous to some of you, but I am so thankful that he did not deny the invitation to the wedding celebration. Some of us have this view of Jesus, you know, where it's like, you know, he's just so busy, so busy, so working, you know, so about his father's business, kind of, kind of disconnected and aloof, maybe a little grumpy, Maybe, maybe just a, maybe a little grumpy, may, maybe kind of rolling like he's just above everybody and, 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 you know, religiously superior. But I love the fact, and I think it says so much about him, that he received the invitation to the wedding celebration and he brought his friends with him. You know, he himself was full of joy. He was full of joy. I think some Christians are just so miserable. You know, just, just miserable. So miserable that people maybe look at their life and think, man, if being a Christian sucks that bad, like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want that. Right? So miserable, just framing the, their, their life as such a sacrifice and so hard and so difficult that, you know, they're just too miserable to enjoy the blessings that God has given let me just remind you, Jesus didn't rescue you to make you miserable, right? He did not rescue you to make you miserable. And I, I, I would say this too uh, as a question, who made joy? Who made joy? Did the devil, did the devil make joy? I Man, I've heard so much crazy stuff over the course of the years. You know, there was a really popular saying when I was a young believer, and the, the saying went something like this, God's not so much interested in your happiness as he is your holiness. God's not so much interested in your happiness as he is your holiness. And look, I'm not, I'm not saying that holiness is not important because it is, but I kind of walked away with this idea that I wasn't supposed to be happy as a Christian. You know, like, hey, just focus on holiness because that's all that matters to God, and happiness is for, you know, the unsaved people. And it's like, I just want to say to you, church, God cares about both in your life. God cares about both in your life. God, <laughs> God wants you to walk in holiness, and God also wants you to walk in happiness as well. We're going to talk about joy. There's a difference between joy uh, and being happy. There's a difference between joy uh, and feelings. But I'm going to define joy in a couple of weeks like this. Christian joy is a Holy Spirit-enabled response, number one, to the beauty of Christ, number two, to the blessing of his promises, and number three, to the fulfillment of his purpose that lifts the heart and soul of the Christian. That's what joy is. Can I, can I read that again? Christian joy is a Holy Spirit-enabled response, number one, to the beauty of Christ. Hey, he's beautiful. 
He's beautiful. You may look at your life right now and it's just death, destruction, decay, and sadness, and there's nothing beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. Beautiful beyond description. Spend some time meditating on him. Joy is a Holy Spirit-enabled response to the blessing of his promises. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to you through your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. And not only that, but you have many, many blessings in a temporal way as well that he has chosen out of his grace to give to you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And, and listen, not only that, but you have divine purpose in your life. There is a reason for your existence. And all of these, as you consider these, we'll talk about this in two weeks, all of this lifts your soul. It should lift your heart. Joy is the desire of Christ for you. In fact, he said to his disciples, you know, this was in the upper room just uh, hours before he was going to be betrayed. He said, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Mary knew this. Mary knew this. And so what did she do? She asked. She brought the need to him and he answered. And today I'm just saying one way that your joy can be full is by coming to him with your petitions and your supplications, casting those things onto him. And when he answers and fulfills them, let the joy of the Lord fill your heart. Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The second thing I would encourage you with today with respect to joy is this, it's in his presence. It's in his presence that there is fullness of joy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, his presence in your life is permanent. His presence in your life is permanent. He will never abandon you. He will never leave you or forsake you. When you're alone, I'm just saying, when you're alone, you're not alone. When you're isolated, you're not isolated because Christ is with you. He's with you on the top of the mountain. He is with you in the deepest part of the valley and in his presence is fullness of joy. Church, church, Enjoy the blessings that God has given to you. Enjoy the blessings that God has given to you. There's an ancient tradition uh, in Israel that was instituted by God, and it was a blessing that the high priest was to speak over the people, and uh, I'm going to have the worship team come up right now. But this blessing is called the uh, high priestly blessing, and this blessing has flowed like a stream for thousands of years. Um, it flowed in ancient Israel as the high priests, they were gathered in the temple or maybe they were in the synagogues and oftentimes they would end their time together with this priestly blessing. In fact, they would begin the day with this priestly blessing over the people and then they would end the service in the temple with a priestly blessing over the people as well. But they also shared this blessing at the end of service on Shabbat in the synagogue. This blessing is flown, it's flowed like a stream in the hearts of Jewish people for thousands of years. And this blessing is for us today as well because you're going to see this blessing is connected to the name of God. 
is connected to the name of God and is connected to the presence of God. So listen, as long as the, the people of God are connected to the name of God and are living in the presence of God, this blessing is for them. And this is how the blessing goes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then he goes on to say, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And so the priest would stand over the people with his hands raised, sometimes hands open like this, and another tradition where the hand was like this, and it represents the triad of this blessing. There are three parts to it. The Lord bless you. Listen, God is good all the time. All the time God is good. When we say that, though, the blessing of God represents his goodness in action, his attitude towards you, his heart towards you, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. It is the Lord. It is Yahweh who pr protects you. It, it is Yahweh who is your rear guard, as David prayed. It is Yahweh, the same God who said to Abraham, Behold, I am your shield. I am your shield. I am your protector. I am your defender. I'm the, I'm the one who's got your back, and I've got your front, and I'm over the top, and I'm underneath you. I am... I am your strong tower of refuge. I am your place of safety. I am the angel of the Lord who makes his encampment about you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is the favor of God. The face of God shines upon you today. The face of God is not looking at you in disappointment. The face of God is not looking at you in disregard. The face of God is not looking at you counting your failures and counting your struggles and, and reminding you of all of the different ways that you come up short. Now may his face shine upon you. You've been accepted in the beloved. You belong to him. He smiles over you because you are fearfully and wonderfully made and because you are his son or you are his daughter. And be gracious to you. You've received the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God to the infinitely ill-deserving. The grace of God simply means that he gives you in abundance what you don't deserve. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. And grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You... You live your life, listen, you live your life under the waterfall of the grace of God. The Lord lifts up his countenance upon you. In other words, God has joy over you and God wants his joy to fill you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. He is the one who takes his hand underneath the proverbial chin and lifts your eyes up to draw your eyes to the hills that you might know where your help comes from. When you are down, when you're downtrodden, when you are discouraged, when you're turned inward, he is the one who lifts up your countenance. He is the one who provides you strength. He is the one, as the psalmist said, that pulls you up out of the miry clay and sets your feet upon a rock. And not only that, not only that, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He is your source of peace. 
He is your source of peace. That anxiety and that stress and the turbulence that you feel on the, on the inside can only be solved by the one who is the source of real peace. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who is going to calm your weary heart. He is the one who's going to lift the burden from you if you will just give it to him. This priestly prayer was spoken over Israel, and today the worship team is going to sing it over your life. The worship team is going to sing this over your life, and I want to encourage you today to lay down your troubles. Not just, not just walk away from them, but put them in the hands of the one who can actually do something about them. Take your anxieties, take your doubts, take your hurts, take the wounds that you have today. Some of you have been wounded. Some of you have been victimized. Some of you have been bearing deep, deep, painful wounds. And, and you've held them to yourself because you're, you're afraid. You're afraid to hand them over to God. You're afraid that maybe the healing won't come. You're afraid of what your life looks like without this thing that's really kind of been the center of everything today. Take it and hand it over to him. I want you to stand this morning and as the team is gonna sing this blessing over your life, I'd like you to open your hands. Take your hands and hold them like this. I know some of you are like, I don't do that. I don't do that, you know? When you worship, it's like, you're a soldier. You're a soldier, man. And you know, everyone else is like going crazy and you're just like, hands not moving. Today, move your hands, okay? Lift them up. And this is what this, is what this represents. You're not, too, you're not too cool to do this. This is a manly thing to do for those of you guys who are like. Right? Because, because real men surrender to Jesus, right? And these, these open hands represent the open heart. You're saying, I'm giving everything to you. I'm giving everything. I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to take the anxieties and the hurt and the pain and the worries and the stress and the problem that I have, the obstacles, the people, and I'm going to place them in your hands. And I'm going to believe that you, Jesus, the creator of all things, if you can make that tarantula nebula, you can handle the issues in my life. If you can turn the water to wine, if you can create carbon and nitrogen out of anything or out of nothing, you can handle anything in my life. You're taking your cares and you're placing them in his hands, but then you're also saying, and I'm, I'm ready to receive. I'm ready to receive. My heart is ready to receive. Some of you have been so discouraged and you've felt like such spiritual failures that you've, your hands have not been opened. Your hands have not been open because you just don't feel worthy to receive the blessings of God. And I just would say to you today, it's never been about how worthy you are. It's about how worthy the Son is. It's about the work He did on the cross. It's about His acceptance of you because you've trusted in Him. And today you need to open your heart up to the waterfall of God's graces and let his blessings refresh you and fill you 
with joy once again, joy inexpressible and full of glory, so that you can leave this place with the joy of the Lord being your strength.